0: political issues
1: one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham Massachusetts the birthplace of modern democracy this is you don't have to yell with your host Dan Sally Sally, Dan Sally, Sally,
0: Sally, Dan. Sally, Sally
1: welcome to your home for the politically homeless the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue Happy 2023 to you all, and if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now last week, we explored how the rise in income inequality in recent decades has led to a rise in political polarization. And another less than desirable trend in American politics in recent years has been a rise in nationalism, particularly in some of the rhetoric of the political right. Now, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you'll know that I'm a former Republican and I've always found it strange that a party that once embraced open markets and an active role in world affairs has recoiled from this since the arrival of Donald Trump. So to help make sense of this rise in nationalism, I spoke with Leonie Huddy, professor of political science at SUNY Stony Brook. Much of her work focuses on the factors that make people susceptible to nationalist thought and the conditions to promote it, And I wanted her help framing the current political environment through this lens. There's a lot of what we discussed in prior episodes woven in here. And I feel like we're getting closer to the bottom of this rabbit hole. As always, I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I'll actually say that warning again, just so everybody hears, which is I have a dog that barks at everything and he will... He makes he's been made cameos in pretty much every episode since we've gotten him. So you you may hear him, you may hear my kids come home depending on the time, you know, all that good stuff. You're in Long Island, right? Correct. And you're originally from Australia, correct? Correct. And do you ever like walk out the door in February and just think to yourself, like, what have I done to myself moving <laughs> to the northeast United States?
0: Uh, you know, it, it's an interesting contrast between Australia and the US because it's also like a two party system. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm just talking here about politics because I'm a political scientist. Yes, and of it course, yeah. Me, yeah, just how different the two countries handled things like COVID. Um, okay. In Australia, the parties, the Australians think their parties are polarized, but they're really not in the way that has occurred in the US, right? They say, oh, the other side is terrible. But in reality, yeah. they're sort of centrist left-right parties. Yeah. They came together over COVID. There was uniformity. There's a national health scheme, so the politics seems reasonably rational. <laughs> Politicians yeah. talk about the issues. On election night, someone from one party and someone from the other, and these are elected officials, sit and discuss the election together. And we can't okay. even imagine that happening in the United States. So, and they're respectful, and they look like colleagues. So I, I really think it is a huge disservice to have this appearance throughout our system that these two sides are at war with each other. It does not help anyone. And as a political scientist, I always say, what is politics about? A lot of it is compromise. Yeah. It's the essence. The essence of politics is trying to deal with competing interests and figure out a way through that. And without compromise, it's very difficult to move forward.
1: Do you think part of that's cultural? Do you think it's the system we have here or maybe a mix of both? Because we're not very polite.
0: Listen, one thing I would say is it doesn't help to have a lot of money in elections. Let me put it that way. And so if we trace that back through the past decades, I think there have been some pernicious influences pushing. This is not a political statement. It's it's an objective fact that for many decades, the right was being pushed further to the right, Mm -hmm. and the left was remaining more centrist. That may be changing a little bit in recent years. But there were heavily moneyed interests with vested interests in developing a free market ideology, we saw some of that, I think it began in the Reagan era, really, Mm -hmm. and we saw some of that through the Tea Party, although a lot of other issues have surfaced, so there are multiple factors at work in the system, I think, but it has not helped to have so much money involved in elections, and having progressively this geographic sorting that has occurred, too, Mm -hmm. throughout the nation, we have to think about why and how that has happened. You know, so we're seeing these geographic separation of people, very tight, like tightly homogeneous congressional districts that lend themselves to extremism, the primary system that in the presidential election can give us a very thin slice of voters turning up at primaries that push the candidates to ideological extremes. So we could probably point to a bunch of systemic factors in addition to some of the things you were articulating at the beginning. That So we'll come back to those, but my view is that political rhetoric plays a role in everything that we're looking at, and politicians can be quite opportunistic.
1: If Mm. they see an
0: opening, they can develop a line of argument or a set of appeals that can bring voters to their side and make extreme arguments sound appealing and attractive.
1: This actually dovetails perfectly into your work and, uh, and what prompted me to, to ask you to, to come on this podcast, which is a lot of your work focuses on the role nationalism plays in American politics. And there's one particular paper, which I'll post in the show notes that discuss, that we'll discuss today. Before we get into the work itself, I think we should probably give the listener some definitions here. Can you I- explain the difference between nationalism and patriotism or just simple national pride?
0: And th- There's a lot of confusion around these yeah. terms, but I- I'll lay it out front. I'm a political psychologist, and so for a long time, political psychologists have seen these as very different. So we would think of patriotism as a love of country. It's basically an attachment to the nation that most of us have. Mm-hmm. We grow up in a place, we learn through our socialization that this is us, that we are, we are a part of this nation, and feeling good about that is basically translates into patriotism. So it's a love of country, but it doesn't, that by itself doesn't necessarily mean anything about our relations with other nations. We can love them, we can admire them, we have friendly nations. Nationalism is the darker side of this where you take that love of country and it spills over into an ethnocentric reaction to other nations. So it usually goes with a sense of national superiority that's beyond love of country to say, we're in fact better. We're superior, our society, our culture is superior and it usually is equated with an opposition to immigration. So a dislike of foreigners, a dislike of foreign influence, an opposition to things like free trade that open borders and allow goods to come in even though Americans live and die by this, but still it doesn't stop them from disliking free trade. And so it is this animosity towards others, Mm -hmm. and it can lead to a restrictive sense of the nation as well as confining it to those people with long-term ancestry in the country who speak the main language, who share the main religion. So it can spill over into what I would call ethno-nationalism, which has this ethnic component, ethnic and religious Mm. component.
1: So it seems like, to oversimplify, patriotism is focused on pride in the in-group, and nationalism, in a way, is antipathy towards the out-group, if if that makes sense. So the interesting thing I found in your work is that nationalism exists independent of political ideology. So I think most of us would now associate nationalism with the right wing and associate nationalism with Donald Trump, but there's also the potential for left wing nationalism. Did I understand that correctly or or no? Uh,
0: No, well, what we're documenting in the past, so if we go back to the mid 1990s, in the data that we have, there really wasn't any relationship between nationalism and I'd say the political parties. So you could be a nationalist inside the Democratic party, you could be a nationalist inside the Republican party. There's certainly been evidence of nationalism if we go back to trade union politics in different countries where people were opposed to the movement of foreign workers, they wanted to protect industries, they didn't want others coming to the nation. There's certainly been plenty of evidence of that in other nations. In Australia when I grew up that was sort of the, the ideology bro- broadly across both political parties for a while. But what's happened since then is that there has been a growing movement of those with, I think, strong nationalistic tendencies to the Republican Party. So this has been happening, and we pinpointed to around 9-11, the Bush administration. I think around that time, we started to see anti-Muslim attitudes, concerns about terrorism, the influx of people who might be violent and disruptive. So it wasn't just Donald Trump. This nationalism has sort of grown inside the Republican Party over the last few decades. So there is a difference now. In the, you go back to that mid-90s, you could find nationalists, no relationship between Republicans and Democrats. Now we see a fairly hefty relationship so that the nationalists are sort of concentrated in the Republican Party to a far greater degree. Mm. Um, so you're right in that sense that Trump, I, I say that Trump capitalized on that. It was already yeah. happening before he showed up.
1: Do you know it's funny so I was born and raised in Boston and when I was growing up the Democratic Party was largely union based here which is much different than the Democratic Party you see today they were much more socially conservative and I would argue probably much more nationalistic in the sense that they were their philosophy was very much a charity begins at home sort of philosophy why are we supporting these people when we can't even provide jobs for each other and I think the interesting thing that I saw in Donald Trump's campaign was how he made overtures to that group quite skillfully. And I remember watching him, this is back in 2015, thinking to myself, this is going to work exceptionally well in the Rust Belt. It had matched the conversations I'd had years ago. And I think getting to something you said earlier, too, about the homogeneity of the parties and about the geographic sorting, The interesting thing that I've found, and I'd love your comments on this, is that when we look at who the two parties represent and the geographies they serve, it's sort of the haves and have-nots of globalization. And the Democrats represent this sort of urban, cosmopolitan, let's say wealthier group of people in America's urban enclaves who have benefited greatly from the last 30 years of economic activity. And then there's a whole group of people who are left out of that conversation, and that seems to be where the Republicans are, are finding their base. Is that something you've seen or, or no? no?
0: question. I mean, yeah. I think that's exactly right, that one thing that we would say is perhaps the parties are signaling more clearly to ordinary voters, especially on these kinds of issues. Economic issues mm-hmm. can sometimes be complicated and hard to follow. Government, it's hard, complicated, hard to follow. But it's pretty easy when someone comes along and says, you know, our problems are because of immigrants, that they're mm-hmm. taking jobs, that they're violent, they're criminal, they're destroying our country. It's a very compelling and seductive line of argument, I think. Mm-hmm. And politicians in the past might've stayed away from it because in one sense, it's a very simplistic and wrong-headed argument. The country, the United States, my country, many countries are these big immigrant nations that have benefited massively. From immigration and so it's a very simplistic argument but an appealing one and so when people feel like yeah something's wrong here what is it and a nationalistic politician comes along he says you know um our country used to be great and look what happened to it all these people came and now it's not so great or mm-hmm. global influences have come and they've weakened our country it's not so great so i, I think that it has a, a clear and simple appeal
1: one of the other things that your study showed was that actually nationalism peaked in 2004, correct? And then, it was kind of, and then it was on the decline until 2014, which is, I think, when the study ended, right?
0: Well, and let me say, it's continued to decline, and nationally. So let me try and make that sound sensible. So while it looks like our country, other countries have become more nationalistic over time, it isn't because there are more ordinary people supporting nationalism. It's more that nationalism has become more relevant through the rhetoric of political parties who've decided to talk about it more. And what that does is send a signal to someone who finds that an appealing argument. Oh, I see, that's my political party because they're the ones who are really talking about this. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are making these arguments when no one... On Either side is making the arguments. It's harder to see where you belong at least on the basis of your views on nationalism So there are two separate things one is the level of this nationalism in a society and the other is whether it's a Point of political cleavage in other words It's signaling where these two parties stand and if they take differing positions It makes it clearer which one you should support on the basis Mm. of these attitudes
1: yeah.
0: And so I think, you know, when we think about why on earth, how could we believe that nationalism has declined? I think part of this that we've seen in the US, and it's true in other countries as well, that our younger generations of voters and young people are more international in their focus. You know, they've grown up mm-hmm. in the internet age, they might have friends from around the world on their social networks and this doesn't sound so good to them they're a little confused i think by nationalism it doesn't have as much resonance for them they see themselves living in this you know linked networked age that doesn't respect national boundaries and so i think what basically when we see nationalism declining it's in part because of new generations
1: as i was reading your work one of the things i thought about was how maybe there's always a certain level of latent nationalism in society. It just kind of sits there, but it's not really effective as a political tool unless certain conditions are met. And the interesting thing is if you look at when nationalism became more pronounced in our political dialogue, it was right around the financial crisis. And I think when that populist wave that we've seen, hopefully crest in the last few years, start rising, So would you say maybe that in a lot of ways nationalism sort of always exists in some way and it's only politically useful in the right conditions?
0: Absolutely. That's my view, partly because we can talk about this, but there is some personality basis to nationalism. In other words, when people have looked at this and looked at certain types of people based on their personalities, we can see some of these stable individual differences map onto nationalism. It doesn't explain everything about why some people are more nationalistic than others, but there are some people who are predisposed to like the sound of this, Mm -hmm. and it's more appealing to them. And we've done some work in Western Europe. There's no real evidence that nationalism is wildly different across nations or that it changes that much over time. If anything, as we see, it's gone down a little bit in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, So, obviously, it's not just personality. There are other factors that may be present when you're growing up and someone that might incline someone with this tendency to adopt these attitudes, but it is uh, present. You know, Mm. it's present, and I think if we looked at history, (laughs) we probably see that people differ in terms of how suspicious they are of foreignness, of those from another place, from outside whatever the boundary is, that they just look at them a little askance and are less able to accept that difference. And, you know, it's kept under wraps because in a political system, if a political party or a candidate isn't pressing on this, it doesn't really matter. It's not part of the political choice landscape. But it's pretty easy to arouse, is what I would say. Now, again, sometimes, why doesn't this happen more often? We've had other norms, countervailing forces, where politicians will say, oh, we're not going there. We need free trade. You know, if our country is going to grow, we need immigration. If we stop bashing immigrants, we're in trouble because we might need them as workers. Maybe our birth rate is low. We need people to come to the country. And so that sort of puts a wrap on this to some extent, and it becomes an unfashionable view, and then people may not express it. They may still hold it, but they don't voice it so much.
1: The, the way I've sort of come to think of it is that if your livelihood or if your concept, if your frame of thinking uh, is, is based on that of a very strong and distinct nation state, then a lot of the republican platforms going to make sense to you. Like so a great example is let's just say manufacturing. You can't build a Ford F150 from home. So you're very much dependent on your government's ability to contain any forces that might threaten your livelihood in a way. And then there are people who thrive on the interconnectedness of things. So if you're in tech or if you're in finance, The open nature and interconnected nature of the world works really great for you and so you can see where people kind of gravitate towards one ideology or the other. The thing I found, there were a couple surprises too in your study. One of the biggest ones and I think one we should talk about is the fact that nationalism has no racial distinction. So white Americans, black Americans just as likely to be nationalist as the other, correct?
0: That's absolutely correct. I mean, I think people think, oh, well, you know, because this is a Republican phenomenon right now, it must be the case that core democratic groups like black Americans would not support it. But that's not the case. When, you know, these questions are things like Americans should be Christian. You know, to be a good American, you need to be Christian. You need to speak English. You need to have ancestry. Those are things that apply to black Americans and to Some individuals Mm -hmm. who are Latino or Latinx, I mean, they definitely also have ancestry in this country. So they feel like the levels are no different, really, in these groups. But what, you know, I'm sure you're going to ask me, but then so why doesn't that translate into support for the Republican Party? You got Um, my
1: next question, yeah. Yeah,
0: (laughs) because that's that's one of the things that we were interested in addressing in our research. And part of that, I, I would think of it as competing loyalties competing considerations so in our research we take one more step and ask people how important is your racial or ethnic identity to you so in other words if you're black how, is it, how important is it to to be black or how important is it to be latino and if people say that it's very important they are democrats even mm. if they're nationalistic so in other words what's happening right now is there's late, there's a latent potential in these groups, right? It's possible if the Republican Party were to say, we're all for African-Americans and we're going to support them and their group and their concerns and civil rights, they might be able to attract people on the basis of nationalism, or if that was less of a difference between the two parties. In other words, I think what someone who's very identified as black thinks is that the only party I can vote for is the Democratic Party because that's the one that Mm -hmm. supports civil rights. Yeah. And it's basically, I'm a traitor to my racial group if I do anything else. It would be selling everyone out, right, if I voted Republican. But if that wasn't the case, there's every reason to think that they would. And in fact, we have evidence if I'm less identified with my racial or ethnic group, and this is especially true among Latinos in the US, that if I'm nationalistic, I'm supporting the Republican Party. And that's exactly what we find. So it's that if they're not attached to their ethnic group, then on the basis of nationalism, they're supporting the Republican Party. Do you know
1: what the percentage of people who identify racially or strongly identify with their race is in terms of the overall voter um, landscape? It's the
0: very strongest level among African-Americans. It's very high. It's like in the okay. 80s. You know,
1: it, oh, okay.
0: Yeah, 80%. So there's very little what I call defection (laughs) from the racial group if you're black. If you're black, and it's partly because people feel they're all in that together. There's a strong sense that to cross that political divide and become Republican, you're basically not black anymore. That's what you're going to hear from other people. You've basically been kicked out. And I think the need for solidarity, racial solidarity, is still pretty high. But if you're from Latin America, if your ancestry is from Latin America, you're Latino, that's not so much the case. And so mm-hmm. strong identification, maybe 50, 60%, it's, it's definitely markedly lower. And there are about 24, in some of our research, a quarter of Latinos say, it doesn't matter to me at all. Mm-hmm. It's not relevant to me. And if you say that, then nationalism is a very strong predictor of being Republican.
1: I think there was a surprise to many people how well Trump did amongst <laughs> Latinos and amongst Spokey. yeah Spokey. and yeah. yeah and I think I think one thing a lot of people misunderstand is that and I'll choose my words carefully because I, I don't I don't want to give the wrong impression but because when you say the black vote that is a real broad generalization but generally you take the the black vote on the whole it tends to be very socially conservative I think you could say the same about the Latino vote as well and so. In a lot of I think a lot of times these overt appeals to race for lack of a better phrasing on the part of the left or this expectation that race is going to dictate ballots is misguided because I think it's more of a marriage of convenience, really, if I'm being honest.
0: I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, it's been a puzzle. when you look at religiosity, church attendance, moral, social values, um. There are a large chunk of the black community and the Latino community that should by rights be Republican based Mm -hmm. on their religious and moral values, but this is a case where group interests, ethnic racial group interests, basically overwhelm those considerations. Mm -hmm. And so they become paramount, more important. But if the parties were appealing equally and demonstrating that they were equally willing to improve the lives of members in the groups, and it was convincing, then it would allow members of these groups to vote on the basis of these social and moral values, right? But right now they just sort of can't. Yeah, it's overwhelmed by these concerns about us as a racial group or us as an ethnic group.
1: There's something else I want to get to here too, which is one of the things you mentioned in your paper is how in Europe, the presence of a right-wing nationalist party will increase the likelihood that nationalism becomes politicized, which makes sense to me. I think the question I have is, is there evidence that once this nationalist dialogue enters a nation's politics, is there evidence that it gains converts? Is there evidence that people who wouldn't otherwise be nationalist all of a sudden convert over to this philosophy because they're just hearing it uh, they're hearing it from, their, from, from folks in politics. Yeah,
0: I mean, I come back to what I was saying earlier, that I, if we look at that European data, it was collected over several decades, mm-hmm. and there wasn't any evidence that nationalism was going up or down in any mm-hmm. of these countries. But over that time period, there had been an emergence of these kinds of nationalistic political parties, and e- it's easier for them to emerge in a multi-party system Where Mm -hmm. you can have the presence of small parties that, through proportional voting, can get a foothold in the parliament. And so, what we were finding there is that if the country did not have one of these parties, and and they having a party wasn't related to the level of nationalism in the nation. Mm -hmm. So other forces were at work. It wasn't that it's just oh wow everyone is nationalistic, so we've obviously got to have one of these parties. There were countries that were a little lower on nationalism that were more likely to have one and some that were higher that didn't. Hmm. But again, all of these countries had a healthy level of nationalism among the voters mm-hmm. in the way that we measure it, which is okay. to be a good, you know, Dutch person, you have to have been born in the Netherlands and, you had hmm. have, and you've had to, got to be Christian and, and you have to speak Dutch. So basically what was happening, again, in a country that had a party like the Austrian Freedom Party or... Swedish Democrats, Sweden is not immune from this, so they have one of these right wing anti immigrant parties. Is that the, the people who were nationalistic were, in this case, more likely to oppose the European Union? So this is a different okay. outcome. It wasn't, it was looking at how in favor of Europe am I, of this larger supranational entity, the European Union. And so a lot of these nationalistic parties in Europe are anti-EU. So a lot of their rhetoric in France, Marine Le Pen, in the early days was very anti-EU. Brussels is interfering with our nation and with our customs and with our values. And so what these parties were doing was driving up levels of opposition to the European Union. Um, Yeah. Was there any evidence that people were converting to nationalism it's just mm-hmm. that the party was signaling hey this is a way to think about what's going on and finding supporters who agreed with them
1: part of the reason i asked that too is one of the things that's really bothered me about the political dialogue over let's call it the last two years or so and i'll hone in on tucker carlson i try to keep my political targets minimal just so as not to alienate one but the thing that really bothers me about tucker carlson is his lionization of Viktor orban of hungary who's somebody who arguably has done more to damage democracy in his own country than any of his contemporaries but he's lionized as this protector of strong borders Or Tucker Carlson's recent aim at Ukraine? And for that matter, maybe some circles in the Republican Party who say that we have no business being involved in this war and why are we sending a bunch of aid to these people? And and what I'm interested in in understanding is I think the nationalists are probably always going to be maybe a smaller subset of the total population, but there's a whole larger group of people who just go along with them Mm -hmm. as a result of that. So do you see people maybe who aren't nationalistic Adopting nationalist policies because that's entering into the political dialogue and so they
0: I mean it's an interesting question. You know, we, we do have backward reasoning. So once I support let's say I'm not very nationalistic, but somehow I like some of the things that Victor Orban is doing, then there is evidence that once I form an attachment with his political party yeah. that I may actually then adopt the policies. Mm. just because I'm a supporter of the party or I'm a supporter of his. So it's possible to go backwards into this through other sorts of loyalties, loyalties to the political party. But I think in a somewhat repressive regime where the press has been attacked in Hungary and it's become difficult to speak out, I mean, in particular, intellectuals have been vilified in Hungary. You may know that that the Central European University... He's pushed to Vienna, I have colleagues who work there, but basically this was funded by George Soros, this went along with Orbán's anti-Soros campaign, Yeah. but Central European University was educating young people in Eastern Europe, and the concern was that it was spreading democratic ideals, and so Orbán, through a concerted campaign, managed to kind of close them down. So what I'm going to say about that is that then people are afraid to speak out. So it also Mm -hmm. becomes difficult to know how many opponents there are Of Hmm. once we move into a more repressive type of nationalism, which I think that is. It's not just nationalism. It's it's also an authoritarian regime right now that is less democratic. So there are other tools at work to silence people so that they feel uncomfortable speaking out.
1: I want to go off-road a little bit. This wasn't part it wasn't part of your work and it wasn't part of my questions, but I have to ask this since we talked about Orbán, which is another leader who I'd love your take on is Bolsonaro in Brazil because I've kept an eye on him since he was elected and you know the interesting thing about Brazil is they don't necessarily have this same anti-immigrant or anti-country philosophy, not in the way we do in the United States where there's this antipathy to Mexico in some circles. But there's a very clear distinction that there are, there's a rampant crime. And, and I'm, I'm curious whether, can nationalism be absent that ethnic outgroup, but still be maybe manifested in the form of like authoritarianism or strongman politics, things like um, that, or is that I, a totally different you, animal?
0: I mean, I haven't followed Bolsonaro as closely as I have yeah. or Ben, but what I would say is that he is a nationalistic politician. If you Mm -hmm. listen to him, there's definitely a pro-Brazil slant to all of that. Mm. It's sort of my my way, country way or the highway, and I'm not going to work with foreign leaders. They're not going to tell me what to do. So so, nationalism doesn't have to go with authoritarian leadership necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be practiced in different ways, but it, Mm -hmm. it could be merged with an authoritarian style. And there is something about nationalism that is sort of conducive to the tough guy leader image, which is, you know, I'm not going to work with them. I'm not going (laughs) to engage in multilateralism. You know, that's for the girls kind of thing. I'm the tough guy leader and uh, I can run the show. So there is a way in which it suits nationalism. (laughs) Um, Right. But they don't necessarily have to go together. And I think this is a complete aside, but people have talked a lot about populism. Mm -hmm. I I find populism is a confusing concept because it often involves nationalism, which is a clear ideology. Yeah. Populism by itself isn't. I mean, it's a style of governing or it involves some authoritarian leadership and the vilification of intellectuals and those in government and so on. But I think, you know, we should keep our eye also on nationalism as a component of that with clear policy implications
1: Yeah, for foreign I mean, what, policy
0: and for trade and for immigration. And for those reasons, I think it's, I, I find it like in some ways more concrete to deal with because we know what kind of policies we'll get out of someone espousing this ideology.
1: And, well, absolutely. And- When I look at populism, I I see something that's spawned by a certain set of conditions and and really, and I could be oversimplifying it, but I I really trace it back to the financial crisis in 2008 when Mm -hmm. people had finally decided that the system was not working for the regular person. And I think that's where you start to see Bernie Sanders, that's where you start to see Donald Trump make a lot more sense in the years that follow that. Do you think the best way to combat nationalism is, is really to combat the conditions that bring about populism, or is this something that can and should be fought on its own?
0: What I would say, again, my view on nationalism and its emergence is that politicians are being opportunistic. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they see what's going on at ground level. There are economic problems. People are hurting. They're not quite sure it's complicated. It's complicated. There's some kind of explanation, but there are probably moldable out there. And mm-hmm. so they sort of take advantage of that and say, yeah. OK, let's just blame the foreigners.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and that's an easy way out. Like, it, it's appealing. I think Trump was exceptionally good at this in terms of making it simple, not too complicated. You know, that, that's more difficult because we can't it's very hard to stop. You know, we don't silence our politicians. They can, in fact say whatever they're going to say. This is what's difficult to combat. Rhetoric also matters. So, you know, these are conditions on the ground and we can understand them in different ways, right? So it's a competition of ideas and explanations. And maybe what we haven't been very good at is on the other side of politics, explaining the virtues of not being nationalistic. And maybe that, I'm guessing, Dan, that you, would, you, you don't want to go back to maybe the way it was before, but how do we maintain an open society that involves multilateral relations with Mm. our friends, with countries around the world that showing that this is a stronger way forward and that if we become too isolated, it is dangerous in this world, right? So that we still have to think about the people who may be affected by globalization. Yeah. But also make it more complicated. So, okay, we're going to deal with that, make the conditions more fair or whatever it is to some level of protection, but we are not anti-others. You know, we're not anti-outsiders.
1: I think the thing the right understands instinctively that the left doesn't in the United States is the power of narrative and the power of national narrative and national story. Mm -hmm. And I think the left thinks if I present the facts, if I have a convincing argument, people are gonna buy into it. And I think Trump understood this better than anybody. Mm -hmm. And a conversation I had a few months back which was really interesting, was with Chris Brown out of Columbia who studies the abolitionist movement. And the thing he told me that I found fascinating was that the abolition of slavery never, ever made economic sense. Never. It was the worst thing the United States could have done economically. And so it was not a factual argument. But the institution of slavery became the yardstick by which you could measure yourself a true democracy or a democratic citizen. And I almost think if we're going to present a compelling counter to this nationalist rhetoric, we really have to think about rewriting this nationalist narrative and this nationalist story. And and I think a lot of these stories come from World War II, and they come from this era when American military might, whether, again, whether this story is correct or not, American military might, solved the world's problems, stood up against Soviet dictatorship and provided for anybody who was willing to work. And that narrative just is broken now. It just doesn't
0: work. And, and you so, know, I mean, and, you know, NATO, our alliances, I mean, we are seeing more multilateralism with cooperation in Ukraine with mm-hmm. NATO. So, you know, there's value and virtue in having friends in the world, mm-hmm. right? Going alone is not <laughs> is not a sensible approach in this complex world is that we see the consequence of that climate change. I mean mm-hmm. going alone is not an option. just isn't. But you know, not everyone's paying attention and they don't they don't realize the, the benefits of these relationships. So but I think also what you have to try and combat also is this feeling of being left out. As as mm-hmm. we started this conversation, people yeah. feel left out. They would feel left out of the global economy. They feel like they've been forgotten. All of the attention is on major cities, cosmopolitan centers. I think you were talking about the rhetoric on the Democratic Party on the left. But there's also going to be some attention to that, that Mm -hmm. you've got to make people feel like I'm out there for you. And it's passing legislation, providing stimulus during COVID. These are examples of how a government can help a broad range of people. It really is a battle of of interpretation. (laughs) I mean, the, the conditions on the ground exist, it's a matter of how we understand them.
1: Yes. Do you know, I have one last question for you, which is Donald Trump was an artful, artful, artful brander. Probably understood that instinctively better than anyone in politics. Terrible policymaker. So the good news is whatever he said he was going to do, he couldn't get done anyway, if you were opposed to Donald Trump. Now, the problem that I see is there are a whole bunch of far more competent people in Republican leadership who've heard this st- who've heard this and heard it work, and are actually able to build policies around it. And my question is, what are the consequences if we don't? combat this politicized nationalism
0: you know the american public as a whole is kind of centrist you know so we just saw we saw a sort of correction in the last election right in the midterm elections people rejected election deniers and so on it is a matter of what the policies i guess are. we've got the rhetoric if there is some severe consequence so let's say we just stop all immigration to the nation, and everything grinds to a halt because you know it's an elderly population with no youngsters, for example, which is happening in some European countries. Then at some point people say, well, you know, we have a new kind of problem. So it, it is not an immediate optimism, but there are self-correcting mechanisms in this world that we live in. We go through these historical periods where people are wringing their hands. And then there is a, a sort of correction that happens, especially in a democratic country where people say, okay, a bit too much of that. Let's go back to the other. As you said, Trump didn't really manage to do that much. We still have to consider the Supreme Court, but leave it aside, yeah. It wasn't all that successful. We maintain trade with China, build a bit of wall at the southern border. The policies have not been all that different under the deal. Right? So whatever you think of them, there hasn't been massive change either way. And so sort of think, okay, if someone came along and did something that was more damaging, let's say to trade, and I I find that unlikely because of these global economic forces, it's very unlikely that someone's really going to kill all foreign trade. Um, So I I think in the end, the American public, some people are deeply, deeply polarised, some people do have these nationalistic tendencies, but we've also lived through many time periods where that was not realized, that mm. nationalism wasn't being manifested at the political level. And so, as we said at the outset, these people will always be around. There will always be some support for nationalistic policies. It really depends on the political figures and what they're saying in terms of what happens, You know, whether mm. they're really running hard with that. So I don't think it's a very satisfying answer. But
1: hey, the, <laughs> a, 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 you're like one of a handful of people who've ended it on an optimistic note in some respects. So, <laughs> so I'm always happy when we can do that. I'm just going to stop it there before I ask another question. <laughs> it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. You can also find a link to Leonie's work in the show notes. And for additional commentary, you can sign up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. So the biggest takeaway from this episode is that nationalism becomes appealing under a certain set of conditions and politicians can be opportunistic and prey on this undercurrent when it suits them. In the case of Trump, he expanded the Republicans' voter base by attracting more socially conservative voters affected by globalization and was able to break through the Democrats' blue wall in northern industrial states in 2016. Now, I've been a big fan of proportional representation in the United States, but this conversation has given me some second thoughts because Leone's work shows that the presence of nationalist parties will increase the likelihood nationalist dialogue enters into discussions around policy and systems with proportional representation are more likely to have nationalist parties arise. Now, the flip side is that here in the United States, we use primaries to select our candidates and these tend to attract more extreme partisan voters, making it much easier for a small group of more extreme voters to influence who ultimately becomes a nominee. And ranked choice voting would be a good way to neutralize this effect. We saw this in November's election in Alaska, where two Trump-backed candidates lost, one to another Republican and one to a Democrat. It'd mean fewer policy options, but it would keep most policy grounded in the center. I'd love your thoughts. Feel free to shoot me an email at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com with comments. As always, music is courtesy of Tech. Ydhty's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. Ydhty is produced in loving memory of the Big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye bye.